This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. The number one objective is to reduce the stigma of addiction because addiction is a disease. It's not a moral failing. So, Sandy, in the aftermath of Jonathan's overdose, I've seen you dig into this issue the way you dug into complex issues when you were vice chairman. It's a national security issue. It's not just a, a health crisis. It's not only law enforcement. It's a national security issue. And when you start talking about overseas, we need to put pressure, more pressure than we actually are. We made the decision that we weren't going to curl up in a little ball and admire this problem, that we had the ability to get things done, that we could make a difference here. I wouldn't be able to live with myself unless we did everything we could to make a difference. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the Cypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypherbrief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. Sandy Winnefeld is a career naval officer who rose to be the second highest ranking officer in the United States military. As the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, one of Sandy's duties was to represent the United States military at National Security Council's deputies meetings where I had the honor to be his colleague. Sandy is a good friend, and I recently had the opportunity to sit down and talk with him, not about traditional national security threats such as Russia and North Korea, but about a non-traditional one, the opioid crisis here in America. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is a special edition of Intelligence Matters. Sandy, thank you for taking the time to be with us here on the show. Well, Michael, it's really good to see you again, and uh, thank you for having me on your show for this important topic. I don't want to embarrass you, Sandy, but you had a remarkable naval career, and you have unique and important views on many foreign policy, national security, and defense issues that our nation faces today. And I very much want to talk to you at some point about those, um, but not today. Today, I want to talk with you about the opioid crisis here in America. 
since 2000, and I know you know all this, um, but I want our, our listeners to know this, um, since 2000, more than a half a million people have died in the United States from drug overdoses involving opioids. That is more than the total number of Americans who perished in combat in all the wars of the 20th century, and that includes World War I and World War II. And the number goes up year after year. It's expected to be 70,000 this year. And Sandy, you and your terrific wife, Mary, have a passion for this issue because you have been affected by it personally. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes, Michael. We're evidence, of course, that this an epidemic doesn't respect any boundaries of age or gender or a race or anything like that. Uh, our son, Jonathan, who was entering Denver University as a freshman uh, this fall, uh, was tragically lost three days after he started school to a, a heroin overdose. He had been in recovery for 16 months, an inpatient recovery, had been finished with his inpatient recovery for about a month uh, when he passed away. So very tragic loss. He was doing extremely well in his recovery, and it just highlights how deeply this molecule burrows its way into your brain uh, and is so hard to get out. So when did, when did this start for him? Jonathan uh, began exhibiting signs of anxiety and depression as a, as a young kid. Uh, it, was no, it wasn't really terribly bad until he started to get into, say, late elementary school, middle school. Uh, this is something that happens to a lot of kids. Yeah, 40% of American teenagers, Michael, have uh, some sort of mental issue similar to anxiety or depression or ADD or bipolar or something like that. And Jonathan had anxiety and depression. So uh, we, weren't, we didn't really know what it was. We took him in and had him, you know, he talked to a, a clinician and he was misdiagnosed as having uh, attention deficit he was prescribed Adderall, which is a methamphetamine, which is probably the worst thing you can give to somebody who actually has anxiety. And we soon because found it, out... Because it makes it worse? Yes. it makes. Uh, if you're anxious and you're being given a methamphetamine, which is sort of an upper, it's only going to make the anxiety worse. So we found that he was uh, taking a little bit of alcohol at night out of our uh, cabinet uh, to, bring to himself come down, down from yeah. the Adderall. Yeah. And uh, one thing led to another, and he started smoking weed and using Xanax as time went by in junior high school and early part of high school. And ultimately, he started having some pretty severe episodes, at which point we pulled him out and put him into inpatient treatment. And uh, he was in that treatment for? 16 months. Uh, it was... Uh, very difficult to find the right place because not many inpatient treatment centers understand fully the different the importance of the dual morbidity of uh, anxiety, depression, and addiction. They have to be treated very carefully together. If you don't treat them together, you're not really solving the problem. So we looked around and we were very fortunate to find a place in Pennsylvania and then subsequently a place in Connecticut that were first class, very very good treatment centers. And he was there for 16 months and. You know, the day we put him in, he told us it was the worst mistake we would ever make. And as he got further and further into the treatment and his brain actually physically started to recover, we could see our son coming back. And by the end of his treatment, he had finished his emergency medical technician qualification. He was excited about helping other people. He was excited about going to college. And he was appeared by all, you know, all appearances to be well on the road to recovery. And what slipped at the end? Well, I think uh, there are a lot of lessons learned that, that uh, we can speak to for parents all the way from elementary school all the way through this process. Of the most important, I would say, is the transition from inpatient care back into society. 
it's absolutely critical that that be done very, very carefully, very, very well. And John didn't get enough of that. So we stepped him down from that inpatient piece. We sent him to, we took him ourselves to Breckenridge, Colorado, great outdoors. He loves the mountains uh, to sort of adjust back into society, go to some meetings, Narcotics Anonymous meetings, that sort of thing. And then uh, Colorado uh, asked that he get his EKG qualification if he were going to be able to be an EMT part-time while he was going to school. So that was a great, another way to transition. We put him in night school for EKG. And little did we know that adjacent to that night school was an open-air heroin market in Denver, which is where he fell back what into What is an open-air heroin market? Open-air heroin market is where you can just walk down the Cherry Creek uh, Trail in Denver, and there are people hanging out there from about 10 o'clock at night until 4 in the morning, and they'll sell you heroin. It's not considered to be a violent crime, the sale of drugs in and most and, states. And, and open means that the police allow it to happen? or I think that's a little strong word for, to say the police allow it to happen. The police don't like this, but they know that if they arrest these people because it's not a violent crime, that they'll just be released the next day. So why expend the effort to do this uh, and, and knowing that nothing's really going to happen? And the only time anything really is... Uh, done about this is when they can trace a specific dealer to a specific fatal overdose, and then they'll pull out the stops and try to find the person that did it. But it's incredibly difficult to make that link because these people are very smart. They move along very, very quickly, especially if they know that they've yeah. caused an overdose. So Jonathan is walking by this place. Yeah. And what, what happens? He's, uh, as far as we can tell, and he texted a friend during that time that he had been offered heroin by somebody along this path, which was literally between where he was taking the course and where he was staying, and that he had turned it down. Well, perhaps he didn't turn it down. Uh, we found a needle exchange card in his wallet. Uh, we know that he died of a heroin and fentanyl overdose. So somewhere in that process, he, he came across it and looking at, you know, doing the detective work on our own to find out where he was spending money and how he was doing it. It looked like about 10 days to two weeks before he started college is when he relapsed. One of, the, one of the things I've learned about this from talking to you is how difficult it is to turn it down when you've been in treatment successfully and then you run across it again. Yeah. Studies have shown that an addict, when simply shown pictures of paraphernalia at a speed that is faster than the conscious brain can process, the subconscious brain can see it and the endorphins, they can see them flow back into the brain. It's just incredibly hard once you've been in an addiction physiology. Even on, even on television. Even on television. And it's especially hard if you're just coming out of a long treatment period. You're very, very vulnerable there, not only to a relapse, but your, your brain is also extremely vulnerable to the amount of heroin you might inject yourself with if you have not been using it for a long time. So, Sandy, in the aftermath of Jonathan's overdose, I've seen you dig into this issue the way you dug into complex issues when you were vice chairman, complex national security issues, reading, talking to people, learning learning everything that you can learn about it. And in doing so, you might not agree with this, but in doing so, I think you've become quite an expert on this. And you've come to the conclusion that there are six key factors at play here that we need to get our arms around if we're going to deal with this. Can you take us through each one of those? I can. Uh, you know, it started off, obviously, that we made the decision that we weren't going to curl up in a little ball and admire this problem, that we had the ability to get things done, that we could 
make a difference here, and I wouldn't be able to live with myself unless we did everything we could to make a difference. So you're correct. We have we thought really sort of five things, but there's a sixth one as well. And, and, and maybe before we get to that is you believe strongly that that's what Jonathan would want oh, absolutely. you to have done. Absolutely. Jonathan wrote an essay that he was required to write before he went into the University of Denver. Uh, and the, the question posed in the essay was, who has had the most profound impact on your life? I was, I'd love to, to have Jonathan say it was his father or maybe a coach or something like that. But in fact, he came up with a remarkably well-written essay that said that the person who most impacted his life he had never met, didn't know his name, didn't even know if he was alive. But during one of his ambulance rides, during his EMT qualification time, he found himself in a McDonald's bathroom in New Haven, Connecticut, performing CPR on someone who was going through a heroin overdose. And he caught himself imagining what this would be like for that person's family and, and how they would be devastated if this person were, you know, died from the overdose and that he'd, it changed his life and that he was going to do everything he could to help other people with this problem. So um, literally within two weeks of him, of him dying was when we've seen this essay. He was very proud of it and I told him how proud I was that he had written it. It was not only a powerful message, it was powerfully written. So yes, Jonathan would want us to do something about us for sure. And the deep, deep irony of that beautiful essay he wrote is that he, was, he had already relapsed at that point. He had relapsed in the exact same scene that he describes in his essay played out on him in his dormitory room. He would have wanted you to carry this on as, as his legacy, and that's what you and, and Mary want to do. So that takes us back to the five right. issues. So, so we, started a, we started a project called SAFE, which is Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. A great acronym. You know, and that's one thing we do in the military pretty <laughs> right. well is acronyms. <clears throat> and uh, we, we really believe there are a number of things that are deeply intertwined, all have to be done well if we're going to reverse this epidemic. The first one is to raise the level of public awareness of this problem. And we're starting to see that, that the public is beginning to understand that there is an epidemic, but we're not yet convinced that they understand the real nature of the epidemic. And what makes me believe that is, is during Jonathan's treatment period, I came to understand a lot about the phenomenon and the physiology of addiction, but I didn't know anything about the epidemic and what's causing it and what's sustaining it. And it was only after Jonathan died that I did this research that you talked about, including reading a remarkable book named Dreamland by Sam Quinones. It's a great book. Um, where you learn so much about what's actually happening to cause this epidemic. It's, it's daunting. It's devastating how this is working. So raising the level of public awareness, and probably the number one objective in that is to reduce the stigma of addiction, because addiction is a disease. It's not a moral failing. And there are a lot of people who are avoiding treatment because of the stigma. And the extreme in that would be, for example, a young um, woman who has a, a, an infant child who is addicted, who knows that if she steps out and admits that she needs treatment, somebody may take her baby away from her. So, I mean, we have got to raise that level of awareness that the stigma has got to go away, and then we can get more people into treatment and take good care of them. So you wrote, Sandy, you wrote um, an amazing essay yourself about this whole experience and what you're trying to do now um, in the Atlantic a few mm -hmm. weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I would recommend that everybody go read that. When I tweeted out that article, somebody responded by saying, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the Winnefelds, but this is not a disease. It's a bad choice. And I was struck by how many people then jumped on him and yeah. said, no, 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 you have this just wrong. But that's part of the stigma here. 
Yeah, and and Michael, there are really three ways that you can enter into uh, this type of addiction. One of them is through a physical injury that's over-prescribed, and there are just countless examples of that. There's a the really sad story of a woman down in Chesapeake, Virginia, whose daughter injured her ankle with a soccer injury. Uh, she had a back injury, had her wisdom teeth removed, and all these things. Opioids were prescribed for her pain in each of these events, and she became addicted. And when the drugs ran out, she turned to heroin and overdosed. So that's the sort of physical injury path. That's not a choice. You know, somebody who gets injured and a doctor prescribes you medicine for pain, people just take it. Right. Another pathway is uh, Jonathan's pathway, which is a mental issue where you're self-medicating. Uh, it may start with one thing and lead to another. But that's not a sort of, hey, I'm going to be a party boy and I'm going to choose to be an addict. Nobody wants to be an addict. The third path, I could maybe argue there is a little bit of a choice there. Uh, and that would be where teenagers are going into their parents' medicine cabinets, pulling out the unused opioids. They take them to a party, dump, into, dump them into what's literally called a skittle bowl, and the kids start taking them. I don't believe there's a lot of addiction that comes out of that. Yes, it is a choice, but the peer pressure is enormous on these kids. So I, I have a hard time with the bad choice thing. It, it really is a disease once it lights off. I was really heartened by how many people jumped on this guy, right? Oh, yeah. That spoke That spoke to maybe people get this, right? That They're this starting is, to understand That it. this is a disease. Yeah, starting to understand it. The other part of, of awareness is just to generate public support for the funding that's going to be required to fix this because it's going to take federal funding, state funding, private funding. It's going to take an enormous amount of resources, particularly for one of the other lines of operation that I'll talk about. Okay. So awareness is number one. Awareness is number one. Prevention uh, is number two. And that's really an education. You, you could confuse that with awareness, but it's really getting in deeply at the community level and educating the people who are most vulnerable to this disease and, and showing them the, the, the risks, the costs of ha it happening to them and showing them ways to avoid it. And just as an example, and I, a lot of people are doing this and more people should, but I spoke the other day to a, a local high school in our area, I had a lacrosse team that was struggling with a little bit of drug problems, uh, went in there and the coaches did a wonderful thing. They invited me in there to tell John's story. And they, they said, if you're going to play lacrosse this year, you have to come and you have to bring your parents. And I didn't wag my finger at them and, you know, chew them out or anything like that. I simply told Jonathan's story and you could have heard a pin drop in the room. So that sort of thing, preventing not only in schools, but in workplaces, uh, helping set the conditions where people just won't actually fall into this. The third line of operation is, of course, the prescription medicine piece. There, there's a, a sordid tale of how the prescription medicine uh, path into opioid addiction began. It starts back in the 1980s with something called the Porter and Jick letter, which was a well-meaning letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine written by these two uh, physicians who, who just said that if in, in very carefully controlled circumstances, an inpatient treatment for people going through terminal cancer or what have you, if it's carefully managed, you only have addiction in about 2% of the cases. Well, of course, if it's carefully managed. The pharmaceutical industry seized on that because they wanted to make more money and said, hey, look, only 2% of people who use opioid medication uh, get addicted. And therefore, you doctors should be using this more because people are complaining about pain. And pain turned into the fifth vital sign it got to the point where physicians were being evaluated by how well they treated pain. Physicians were in, under great pressure to see a lot of patients, so they weren't spending much time with the patients. And they were under pressure 
you know, vacations provided by pharmaceutical countries, companies, and all those things came together in a perfect storm where you suddenly saw massive prescriptions for opioids for pain. So somebody told me, um, I don't know if this is true, but somebody told me that there are more prescriptions um, written for pain management with opioids in the United States than the rest of the world combined. The statistics are stunning. There are little towns of 3,000 people where millions of opioid prescriptions were written in one year. So, of course, people were flocking to these towns. Uh, and the interesting thing is we're writing more prescription for opioids, but the instances of, of pain reporting have not dropped one bit in the country. So interesting there. So, so what do you do about that? There are, there's a lot of physician education. There's a lot of pressure to be placed on the pharmaceutical companies. There's a lot of um, things like sharing prescription statistics across state lines so that a, a pharmacy or a doctor can see whether you've you know, crossed a state line just to get another uh, set of prescriptions and the like. But a lot of difference can be made in the prescription medicine piece. But that's not enough. You have to Is, do – go ahead. I was just going to ask, do you see parallels here between the pharmaceutical industry and the tobacco industry? I do. There, there, were, there are documented instances where the pharmaceutical industry has known that they were causing harm and ha have continued to push uh, opioid medication nonetheless. Uh, it's a sad tale. And, and the best place you can read about it is right in Sam Quinones' book, Dreamland. It, but it, people are beginning to recognize this. And I've said big pharma is starting to sound a lot like big tobacco. So you're, you're absolutely spot on there. The next line of operation, Michael, is law enforcement and medical response. This is number four, I think. This is number four. four. You're yeah. right. And that's where uh, there are a whole host of things that need to be done. Uh, sentencing guidelines. Uh, we need to treat drug sales uh, the right way. And, and in, in this, I say there are three types of people in this arena. There are users who are not dealers. And unfortunately, we tend to stigmatize these people by prosecuting them. 85%, according to the FBI, 85% of the people who are prosecuted for drug crimes in this country are users, not dealers. That's got to stop. That's not, how you, that's not how you stop an epidemic. The second set of people are the people who are dealers but not users. Uh, a lot of the Mexican heroin families who have created this incredible distribution network across the country, those people ought to be deeply criminalized. This ought to be felony attempted murder, whether it causes, causes an overdose or a fatal overdose or not. So we need to deeply criminalize them. The tough case are the people who are dealers, but only in order to support their habit. And those are a special case. Drug courts, that sort of thing. Uh, I don't have all the answers to how you treat those people, but we need to focus very hard to get that piece of the law enforcement thing right. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. If you like what you're hearing and want more of the serious conversations happening around national and global security issues, join our NatSec community at thecypherbrief.com. Click on the Threat Conference button to find out more about our premier national security conference in April, where we'll bring together dozens of high-level experts from the Cypher Briefs network, along with global corporate leaders, to share ideas, talk about how we tackle threats, and enhance cooperation from the best minds in the world on these issues. General Michael Hayden will deliver the Cypher Brief's annual threat report. He calls the conference a live-action version of what you get at the Cypher Brief every day. For more information, go to tcbconference.com. No politics, just strategies and solutions to combat real-world threats. You can also follow hashtag TCBThreatConference on Twitter. Now back to the conversation. The dealers, not users thing. This idea just popped into my head. Love to know what you think of this. In the United States, right, is about law enforcement. 
overseas, it's where it's happening in places like Mexico, Central America, you would hope it's about law enforcement, but in some cases they don't have the capacity. Um, in some, some other cases, they don't have the will. Do we need to think about this as more than a law enforcement issue? Well, it given is. Given the number of people who are dying? As we may get to later in the conversation, it's a national security issue. It's not just a, a health crisis. It's not only law enforcement. It's a national security issue. And when you start talking about overseas, fentanyl coming from China, black tar heroin coming from Mexico, and to a much lesser degree, heroin coming from Afghanistan. It's sort of a commoditized thing. We don't get much from Afghanistan. Most of it comes from Mexico. But yes, absolutely. It's a national security issue. We need to put pressure, more pressure than we actually are. We, and there is some pressure being applied, but not enough. Uh, and I can talk yeah. all afternoon about yeah. that well, because I'm a national security yeah, we'll guy, come right? Back to that. We'll come back to that. Right. So, um, so there are, there are uh, technical things. You know, how do you detect fentanyl coming in from China through the mail? Uh, you, you know, you want to talk about building a wall to be it's a major critical way, here. It's the major way it comes in. It comes in through the mail. It comes through the mail. Uh, you or can, some you kind can, of courier. You can order it yeah. and it, you get it through the mail. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, the other part of, of sort of law enforcement medical response is it, it may not seem that way, but these things called safe use zones, which I think falls into the medical response and law enforcement piece, company, or countries like Portugal have experimented with this. It's a little bit of anathema for people in the United States to think, you know, wait a minute, a safe use zone? That sounds an awful lot like Amsterdam or something, you know, these horrible tales of what's going on over there. Well, in fact, Portugal has, has just plummeted their fatal overdose rate by having a place where, you know, an addict can't buy drugs there. They have to get it someplace else, but at least they can go in there and use it in a place where there's a qualified professional who can administer what we call Narcan, Narcan or naloxone which is an overdose reducing or uh, reversing drug. So, you know, it's safe there. And they can also offer treatment to these people. You can't force them into it. But a lot, you know, at some point, every addict gets to the point where they say, you know, enough, I've got to get some treatment. And if you got somebody there to receive them and put them into treatment, well, that makes sense. So I, th I think it's really important that we try that. I think Seattle is experimenting with this right now. Colorado has a bipartisan state legislation to experiment with safe use zones that we're hopeful will pass. Not ready to jump into it whole hog. We got to make sure it works in the U.S. as well as other places. But it's very worthy of experimentation. And maybe we would have saved Jonathan's life if he had had a place to go to do this rather than back to his dorm room. Mm -hmm. So lots in that, in that field. The next line of operation is treatment and recovery. That's where uh, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there, but it's going to take a lot of resources. We are just desperately short of capability and capacity and affordability for that in our country. What I mean by capability is that the standards of treatment across the board in that industry are just not there. Many of them don't understand the dual morbidity of, of a mental illness with uh, addiction. The, the way they treat patients is not at all standardized. So there, there's a lot more capability that can be applied in that. And capacity, there's just not enough of it. Of course, and then the affordability. It's just terribly expensive. So you find the insurance companies are uh, sometimes willing to pay for 30 days of inpatient treatment for people. And what I tell, tell audiences is, uh, you know what 30 days does for you? It just gives your parents 30 days of sleep because they know you're safe. But after 30 days, the recovery rates are just horrible. Mm -hmm. It takes about a year to recover your brain from mm -hmm. this disease. Jonathan's treatment was extraordinarily expensive. It cost us the equivalent of a private college education, four years, 
in the 16 months that we had Jonathan in treatment. And the vast majority of Americans can't afford that. No way. So there's a combination of maybe a little bit of government subsidy, maybe a little bit of cost control, standardization, and the like. I believe it's in the art of the possible to offer this kind of intense long-term treatment to addicts so we can at least have a chance of getting them recovered. And, you know, if, if it's done right, recovery rates are as high as 80 90% for people who go through these programs. Unfortunately, not for Jonathan. He was one of the 10 or 15%. But most of the treatment programs out there are not necessarily cutting it. So that was... That was number five. Was number five. Number six is, uh, first of all, those five, uh, we, we like to say, are so deeply intertwined that if you did four of the five perfectly, we'll fail. And you go, what? You know, wouldn't we be 80% effective? No, we'll fail. If you don't raise public awareness to get rid of the stigma, you won't get enough people into treatment. If you take care of the prescription drugs completely, well, people will just turn to heroin, which they always already do. There's just incredible uh, interrelatedness between these. And then there's also this sixth one that we have folded into SAFE, which is family outreach, which is mostly intended to do two things. One, to be able to connect families to good treatment programs. Because what we found, and, and, and uh, several of our other friends who have been in this situation have found, is when the moment comes, when you finally go, enough, I've got to get my loved one into an inpatient treatment program, you find that you're desperate. You, you, it's got to happen now, 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 or, or you're going to lose this person. And you don't know where to go. There's no match.com for finding just the right treatment facility that is near you, that has the right age groups, that has the you know, right genders, has the right insurance, you know, that sort of thing. It, it just doesn't exist. So, How long did it take you to find that right place for Jonathan? We were very fortunate. We couldn't find a place to detox Jonathan in the Washington, D.C. area, so we had to drive him to Richmond, and we put him in a psych ward there for a week. And that gave us a little bit of breathing room, and we, we were just through the friend network were immediately turned to uh, a good friend whose, whose son had been through this and turned us on basically to a, a location in Pennsylvania that could handle the dual morbidity piece. We were very, very lucky to find a place that quickly and, and actually get him in because some of these places don't have bed space, right? They're, they're full. So we felt very fortunate and we've seen this happen in other people and we've helped them try to find places very quickly. Now there's a website out there called SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A. It's a government effort. It's good, but, but needs to be better. And, and what you do is you type in your zip code, and it'll pop up a map with little pins on it that show all the treatment facilities around you. The problem with that, and several problems, one, many of these uh, supposed treatment facilities are nothing more than hospitals, emergency rooms where you can take somebody. You hit the pin, and it takes you to the, to the place's website, but it doesn't really tell you whether they're good or not. It doesn't tell you whether they do dual morbidity or not, what kind of insurance. So what we're looking for is some sort of a match.com solution where you can leverage that data, that big data, and now put more con context into it so that a parent or a loved one who's, who's trying to get somebody into inpatient treatment can rapidly find you know, a good list of places that may not even be in your local area that are just right for your particular circumstances because everybody's different. So that's one, one element of the outreach. The other element is nothing more than lessons learned. And the lessons learned start all the way in elementary school with your kids. Who are they hanging around with? What are their propensities? Do they have some sort of a mental illness that's budding? And is it 
you know, let's get it diagnosed right. Is it attention deficit, which is all too often what's, you know, diagnosed, or is it some kind of anxiety or depression? Let's get that started down the right road. And are they a follower or are they a leader? You know, just know what's going on with those kids. And then as they get into the middle school, which is where people start actually smoking weed and that sort of thing, getting into high school, really being sensitive to what's happening in their lives and especially being sensitive to whether or not they're going down the path of addiction, which is you really have to understand what addiction is about to to get that. And then more lessons learned. When you actually do get them in some kind of either counseling, inpatient, outpatient, or whatever treatment, and then that transition out. So what we're going to try to do with this family outreach piece is to crowdsource lessons learned. We've already got plenty of our own that we've added into our website But there's a lot more out there I know that other people have, and we're going to try to draw those in and make them available, family outreach, to people who are uh, concerned about this. I have kind of three three reactions, Sandy, to what you just walked us through. One is it's an amazing thing that you're doing here, given the magnitude of this problem and how important it is to our nation. The second is this is exactly the same Sandy Winnefeld I saw in the sit room who would walk in with six lines of effort, right, for a particular military solution to a problem or a defense solution to a problem. But the other reaction is it really sounds to me that the government should be getting its arms around this, that there's a, that there's a responsibility on the part of our national leaders to, to do exactly what you're doing here, right? And, and how, how do you think about that? Well, I, I do believe that the first responsibility of a politician is to take care for the security of the people that elected him or her. That's your first responsibility. Absolutely. And I don't know that we're doing a very good job of that, to be honest with you. And I'm apolitical, as you know, a former military officer. I try to stay out of politics. So I look at things as sort of a balance sheet. You've done a much better job than I have at that. (laughs) (laughs) I I do look at it as a balance sheet. So, So I'll just be very open and honest here. I think on the one hand, I really applaud President for appointing Chris Christie to run the commission that he did. I think it's the most important thing that Chris Christie's ever done in his life. Uh, it far eclipses being the governor of a state, although I noticed that he just dedicated $35 million of state resources to this problem. But more important are the, are the recommendations he made, not all of which have been taken. I also applaud the president and the first lady for standing up and talking about this at the end of October. On the other side of the balance sheet is it's unfortunate that this was described as a public health emergency who has access to, what, $57,000 in that account rather than a national emergency, which it really is. And we should uh, and we'll open up into, a lot more resources. Right, exactly. Uh, I, I think that he fell into the trap of saying, you know, just say no. There are a lot of bad people doing this. You, it's a choice. And it, it's much, much more sophisticated and nuanced than that when you, when you want to talk about addiction. And then there was, was talk about a big ad campaign. I haven't seen anything there. There was talk about banning a particular drug, which might have been OxyContin. I don't know. They didn't say. Hasn't happened. They, they failed in uh, appointing an uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy uh, leader and haven't seen anybody else nominated. So on the one hand, I give them a lot of credit for recognizing this as a, as a problem. That's really good. It was really important, but I haven't seen the execution that I need to see. And you're absolutely right. We're not going to solve this unless the federal government gets involved and applies the kind of resources that only a federal government can provide. But I also don't want to underestimate the fact that it, a lot of this is going to happen at the community level. 
And the federal government is not going to take that on unless we get the first piece of your line of effort right, which is this awareness Awareness. of the magnitude and importance of this problem. Precisely. Back to the five plus the one. You talked about how complex and interrelated the five are. One of the things that means is that there's no sequence here, one through five, right? It's all at the same time. And you've talked a lot about that. Yeah. You have to attack it all at once. And one of the cross-cutting lines of operation that we're going to have in SAFE is a national coordinator. We're hoping to get state uh, volunteers to coordinate this so that that they can tell us what's going on at at the individual state and local levels along all of these lines of operation. So what kind of programs are out there, let's say, in Denver, Colorado, to raise public awareness, to do prevention? What kind of sentencing guidelines do they have? What sort of state legislation are they pushing right now to get at this problem? Where are the good treatment centers? Are are, are they doing what they should be doing? Do people have access to them? What are the insurance companies doing? Trying to get gather that holistic approach uh, as best we can. And from you know, we we don't have unlimited resources, right? We're not going to be able to do all of this ourselves, even though we will be touching all of it. We plan to act strategically. There are a lot of other really good organizations out there that are trying to take this problem on as well. We want to find out where the white space is, where we can either enhance the capacity for the things that they're doing well, or to fill in where nothing's being done or not enough is being done by other organizations. So what do you see SAFE, your foundation, doing on a day-to-day basis once it gets up and running? Well, we're going to have a – eventually, we're going to have a person hired to run each line of operation. Uh, In the early going, we'll probably have one person for two. uh, And then as we grow our funding and expand, we'll have people actually managing these individual lines of operation. Plus uh, cross-cutting lines of operation, one of which I just mentioned was the the national coordination piece. Another is the technical piece because there are some technical approaches to this problem that aren't going to solve it, but that will contribute to solving it. For example, the Match.com that I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, another one would be a wearable that that an addict – John would have worn a wearable. I know it because he had Narcan in his room. He did not want to die from an overdose. He would have worn it if there were a a wearable that would alert – local authorities to the symptoms of an overdose, which are fairly clear. Uh, And there are a few other technical things we could do. So that's cross-cutting. And then, of course, the communications piece is cross-cutting. And we're going to push, we're going to forge ahead as hard as we can with the resources we have in each of those areas, wherever, you know, horizontally, geographically across the country and deeply we can. And it's a really interesting thing, a question we have to ask ourselves. Do we do we focus this in one area and try to get all six things powerfully done in one area? Or do we focus across the entire country and try to touch a little bit everywhere? And I think we can probably do a little bit of both. We just, you know, you can't do everything deeply everywhere at the same time. Right. And how can people help? People can help in several ways. We've gotten an enormous number of offers of, of technical help or, or uh, volunteer help. Hey, I want, I, I'm good at this and I'd like to help you guys. We've also gotten a lot of financial help. We've raised funds on our website, which is safeproject.us. There's a donate button there. Safeproject.us. Safeproject.us. And you can follow us on Twitter at safeprojectus. And we're also on Facebook. Uh, You can donate. We have uh, done a fairly good job of raising funds so far to get our feet under us. We need more in order to really flesh out the lines of operation that we've just talked about. We really appreciate the donations we've gotten so far, some of which may be from your listeners. Uh, We don't care whether they're big donations or small donations. What it tells us is that people get this 
and they want to help solve it, and we very much appreciate what we've gotten. So if there are people who have particular areas of expertise, they want to be a state coordinator someplace, or they want to be part of a speaker's bureau for prevention that we might try to start up in each diff- a different state, uh, we're, we're gathering that information now. We're still kind of getting our feet under us, but we're, we're in the information gathering mode and happy to take any assistance we can get. And um, Sandy, what's your objective? The objective is to contribute as much as we can to reversing this epidemic. I believe that it's doable in five years, maybe, maybe a little bit longer than that. If we get all of these lines of operation working in concert, uh, we can actually make substantial progress in, I'd say, five years. It's going to be just like wounded warriors are going to be with us as long as they're alive. Our current addicted population is going to be with us as long as they're alive. It's a lifelong struggle. But there's no reason why we can't cut off the input and take good care of the people that we have mm-hmm. uh, going through the system now. Uh, so that's our goal. Uh, it's, it's hard to measure tangible progress that an individual organization makes. But if we're all rowing together, uh, the real major metric for me is reduce the number of fatal overdoses. Uh, and we can, we can measure those. The Center for, Centers for Disease Control measures that every year. And we won't know whether our con- contribution is what did it, but uh, working together, we can make it happen. Right. Let's talk about this as a national security issue, um, which I know you think about it that way, and we've talked already a little bit about that. In what ways is this a national well, security I, issue? I think in a couple of ways. One you can call it a public health issue if there are 64,000 people dying in a given year from overdoses. But that starts to rise above being just a public health emergency. That's a lot of people dying. To me, that's, sort of, that, that's national emergency, not just public health emergency. And then when you factor in all of the other ancillary effects that this addiction problem is having over and above the human tragedy of people dying, uh, there were something like 85,000 kids put in foster homes last year. And that doesn't even count the ones who were taken in by grandparents or cousins or uncles or something like that. Uh, that's, that's really tough for kids to have an addicted parent and then get shuttled off into another place. The White House, it used to be something like uh, 70 or $80 billion of impact. The White House revised its impact statement uh, that $500 billion a year, $504 billion a year of economic impact on this country. That's not just a, a public health emergency. That's a national emergency. And then when you throw the security word on top of that, national security emergency, when in fact most of the, all of these drugs are pretty much coming in from overseas. They're either black tar heroin coming in from Mexico or fentanyl, which is really killing a lot of people, coming in from China. That's almost like a hostile act when you are negligent in preventing a harmful substance from being exported from your country into another country that's causing grave damage. And you, you cited this statistic yourself. More people than have been killed in every war in the 20th century for the United States, killed in, you know, since 2000. So that's the level it needs to rise to. It's a, it is a genuine national security and national emergency. If we had 64,000 people killed on one day in this country, for whatever reason, a terrorist act, a nuclear weapon, think a of, natural catastrophe, it would, be, it would change us forever. Think about the way we responded to 9-11, yeah. 3,000 people. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we brought every government resource to bear. We did. And, and what would be possible here if we could do that? Uh, it would be amazing. Ranging from mobilizing our public health and informational resources, our law enforcement resources, all the way to candidly applying some of the techniques, tactics, and procedures that your organization and my organization employed 
overseas, whether you employ them domestically or overseas, there's some pretty amazing capabilities that we can bring to bear on the law enforcement side of this if we wanted to. You know, it's a national security issue in another way, too, because it undermines the fabric of our society, right? And at the end of the day, one of the one of the key determinants of our national security is the health right. of our economy and our society, and this is undermining it. Yeah. Just as Vladimir Putin is doing with his information warfare, this is undermining who we are. It is, and there are uh, it's cut into our productivity. There are some good statistics out there that that show how the opioid addiction epidemic has impacted the productivity, the economic productivity of the country. I have personal experience with that being on the board of, a, of an industrial company that's based in Ripon, Wisconsin, where we will hire anybody who walks in the door who can pass a drug test, and we are short of people. That says something. There's a lot of companies who want to hire yeah. people and can't yeah. find people who can pass a drug test. Yeah. Sandy, thank you very much for your time. I think what you're doing, trying to do about this problem is incredibly important. I would encourage people to help in any way they can. Um, I know you've gotten a lot of people reaching out to you, giving you that message, and and, and in some cases asking for help because they have their own problems and wanting to um, learn from your your experiences. I think you're going to make a huge difference, and I think it's going to be a great legacy for, for Jonathan Winnefeld. Well, thank you, Michael, and I want to thank you for stepping aside from the normal issues that you talk about in this great program, great podcast, to take a peek at this one, uh, because it is important. And I really applaud you for recognizing that and allowing me the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. Sandy, thank you for your time. That was Sandy Winnefeld. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for the next regular episode of Intelligence Matters. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.